Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Join me in prayer, please. Father, as we open your word this morning, and as we continue our study of Romans, I just pray, Father, that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truth. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace it and rest upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we had a wonderful Easter Sunday, but the one thing I'm reminded of is how much I enjoy preaching a verse at a time. Of course, naturally, I had an Easter sermon, but it kind of interrupts the flow, if you will, when you're used to preaching a verse at a time. And so you recognize that people that preach topically is a real challenge. And so I'm gladly back into Romans. And if you're like me, you need a little bit of a review of what we've covered, where we left off. And so let me start by giving you just a brief review, and then we'll pick up where we left off uh, this Sunday before Easter. And if you remember, Romans 1 through 8, Paul lays out his case for the gospel and for salvation. And you see in chapter 8, he brings up the doctrine of predestination. And of course, that's God picking who he is going to save. And you see that in Romans 8, 28, which is a verse that we all know very well. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And this topic leads us to Romans chapter 9, where we've been at for quite some time, and if you remember when I started Romans chapter 9, I bring up the point that Paul is anticipating the question from some of his readers, what about the Jews? Because the Jews ended up rejecting Christ. So he's anticipating that there's a group of people out there that are saying, okay, Paul, if God predestines, if he chooses The Jews were God's chosen people, and yet they rejected him. So what about the Jews? And in fact, you can see that in the opening of chapter 9, when Paul wrote, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And as Paul opens up 
Romans chapter 9, John Stott, in his commentary on this chapter, phrases the rest of the chapter in rhetorical questions. And I find that they're quite appropriate. We've been preaching through those. The first question is, is is God's word void? In other words, in answering the question on the Jews, is God's word void? Is it of no effect? And you see that in verse 6 of Romans 9, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. And I preached through that. Then we got to question number two. Is there unrighteousness with God? Which you can see in verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, is he endorsing evil? And I preach through that. And then I have been preaching through question number three. Why does God still blame us if God picks? And you'll see that in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? And we're still in this question. And as I started preaching through this question, I preached it in a three parts. We're on the third part this morning. The first part was vessels of wrath, which is the center. And I preached through what it means to be a vessel of wrath. And in preaching through that, we came away with this conclusion that the sinner condemns himself, that the sinner picks death, the sinner picks sin, the sinner picks darkness. Then I preached through vessels of glory. And unlike vessels of wrath that pick, relish, and stay in their sin, vessels of glory... The saint isn't picking God. God picks the saint. And he's not picking us out of our own righteousness. He picks us through his wonderful grace. And I also made mention as I've preached through Romans 9 that you can look at this as the theodicy of God. In other words, we are defending God in his action regarding this doctrine of predestination. And as we continue to look at the theodicy of God, looking at the righteous acts of God, I'm now bringing up the third part, vessels of wrath, vessels of glory, and now we're going to look at the workings of God and how he works among vessels of wrath or vessels of glory. Because after all, as I've said before, there are two lines Throughout the Bible, people can only be in two groups. Sheep and goats, wheat and tares, the lost and the saved, vessels of wrath, vessels of glory. There's only two responses. And you can see with this idea of vessels of wrath and vessels of glory that God is at work. As I brought up previously, you can see this in his comment of vessels of mercy, because in Romans 9.23, he says that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, the saved, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Now, if you are preparing something, you are working 
aren't you? God has been working before the beginning of time. The Bible says that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. He has been working eternally. He continues to work. Psalm 121.4 says that God doesn't slumber nor sleep. He's active all the time. And he's at work on his plan. My mom had this phrase that she would drill into me and my brother. And it stuck. And I think it has a lot of truth. My mom used to say, plan your work and work your plan. Plan your work and work your plan. That's good advice. It stuck with me. And this is how God works. And unfortunately, there's this idea that a lot of people have of God that he is a cosmic superman. And if you remember the comic Superman, in the comic book, Superman would be flying over the fictional city of Metropolis. And as he flew over the city of Metropolis, he would be looking down upon the city, and then lo and behold, here would be someone that would be in trouble, and Superman would see that and he would come to the rescue. And this is some folks' idea of God. That God is hovering above and, oops, there's somebody in trouble. I will go and help them. That's their view. It isn't the correct view, by the way. God is working according to his plan as we think about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And you can see this all throughout the Bible. Let me give you one example. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, starting in verse 9. This is what Isaiah wrote. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring the end from the beginning. Sounds like a plan, doesn't it? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. I will do all my pleasure. God is at work and he is at work in his Plan. Let me give you another verse. The 33rd Psalm, verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God's at work. The plans of his heart to all generations. Let's look at what God told the Babylonian captives in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. It's a verse that we're all familiar with. 
It reads, For thus says the Lord, after seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me, and you will search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Sounds like a plan, doesn't it? He says, after 70 years, this is what I'm going to do. And this is what you're going to do. And lo and behold, it happened. It's a plan. Ever since the beginning of time, God has been working his plan. In fact, he told us his plan before it came to pass. And as we look at Romans 9, and if you look at Romans 9 as a chapter to defend the righteous acts of God as He interacts with mankind, why does He still blame us? This question that Paul is posing, it's because He told us His plan before it began. That's one of the response. One of those is, he is the potter, we are the clay. He is the creator, we are the created. He has power over us. But in addition to that, we shouldn't be surprised because he told us his plan. And in order to answer that, what Paul does here in Romans 9 is he quotes a couple of Old Testament prophets. The first one is Hosea. So when you look at Romans 9.25, he says, and he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved, and it shall come to pass in this place where it was said to them, you are not my people, therefore they shall be called the sons of the living God. Who is Hosea talking about? It's us. It's the Gentiles. I will call them my people who were not my people. When he wrote this, it was the Hebrews that had a relationship with God. Now, let's give this some historical context. To do that, turn to Hosea chapter 1. And in Hosea chapter 1, He tells us when he wrote this. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Gives us context. Well, when was that? When was the reign of Jeroboam? Well, The consensus is is that it was between 755 and 725 B.C. So 755 to 725, 
Hosea writes that there's going to be a different people group. There's going to be a different people group that God will call. Spring forward nearly 800 years later in Acts, starting in Acts 11, you see the church at Antioch where Gentiles embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hosea wrote it 800 years later, roughly. It comes to pass. And it didn't stop at Antioch. It has been snowballing ever since, hasn't it? As Gentiles from all around the world embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in fact, one could argue that up until about probably 40 or 50 years ago, it was the center point of Western civilization and Western thought. But it just isn't in the West. Christians are found all over the world. I will call a people who are not my people in 800 years later. It starts and it's been going on ever since. God is at work. Paul then goes on and quotes Isaiah. Look back at our focal passage, Romans 9, verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Sand of the sea, where does he get that from? That's the covenant promise that he made with Abraham, isn't it? That is physical Israel. Remember earlier on, Paul said, all who are of Israel aren't of Israel. In other words, you and I have been grafted into the tree. There's a physical Israel. There's a spiritual Israel. You and I are part of the spiritual Israel. But here Isaiah says that though the physical number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, what does he say? The remnant will be saved. The remnant. In other words, there won't be a lot of Hebrews that embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be a small number. He goes on and says in verse 28 of Romans 9, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth has left us a seed, he would become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Now, let's talk about Isaiah. Isaiah is a contemporary of Hosea about the same time. And in fact, it's estimated that he wrote Isaiah around 740 B.C., Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, as Peter stands up to address the Sanhedrin, the religious court of his day. Acts chapter 4 verse 8, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, but what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the peoples of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you, builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, 800 years, roughly 800 years before Acts chapter 4, Isaiah wrote that the Jews would reject Jesus Christ. 800 years. God is at work and he is working his plan. So when people say, well, it's not fair that God picks, what they're really saying is, I want a different system. I want a different system. Because they don't want to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the natural man is at enmity with God. The natural man condemns himself because he refuses to let go of his sin. But God is at work with vessels of mercy. He's at work. He picks in spite of us. He picks. And it says that he is working through us. He's working through us. And I think that this is an idea that we individually and corporately should embrace because if God has chosen us and He's working through us and He prepared those works beforehand, shouldn't we embrace them? Shouldn't we embrace them when we recognize that there's no righteous act or merit that I can point to that makes me acceptable before a holy and righteous God? Nothing. I got nothing. It's only God. It's only God and His grace. And through His grace and through the work of the cross, you and I have been accepted in the Beloved. And we find mercy and acceptance and grace. And He gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in His truth. And I will tell you one thing, and I know that you can relate to this. The more you commit yourself to the walk, the sweeter it grows the sweeter it is. The more you commit yourself to God in His plan, His work, His kingdom, His authority, His institutions, it is just the most wonderful thing. Because He loved us so much that He gave His Son. Not so we can just pull out this ticket of heaven when we stand before the gates. He gave us His Son so that we could have a relationship, a relationship with Him in which we dwell with God and we have the mind of Christ and we understand His truth and we understand His Word. And it is a message that we should be proclaiming. We should embrace it as a church and we should be proclaiming because the harvest isn't finished. The harvest isn't finished. Because when the harvest is finished, he's coming back. 
And we have been told that we should go and share. And this is the wonderful truth that we should share, that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us so that we could have life. We can't sit idly by in a world that is in decay. Some people that embrace Reformation theology in its extreme, they'll say, well, God chose people, so I don't have to do anything. We've been told to go out. We've been told to go out. And either one of two things are going to happen. The Bible says we're salt and light. Light is when people accept the Lord Jesus Christ after we participate in delivering the gospel to them. What salt? We are an instrument to keep society from decaying faster than it already is. Salt and light. That's our purpose. And we need to proclaim that. Because just as God is at work to this very day, just as people all across the globe are still accepting the Lord Jesus Christ today, we need to be at work with Him in His kingdom because He has called us to do it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank You for Your wonderful truth. And we thank You that we can look back at the Old Testament and we can see you at work and then we can embrace that and recognize that we're part of that plan individually. That there's a personal aspect to it in which you saved us just through your grace. I pray, Lord, that we'd embrace that. I pray that we would extol that message of grace to a lost community. And praise you as Lord of all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, milkcreekchurch.org.